I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we explore those principles and cultivate those virtues that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. We got our first big, big snowfall of the year here in Sioux Falls this last Friday, and the kids are loving it. It's just great. The roads are tough. I know out west, they've already gotten uh, gotten a bunch of snow up in the hills at least once, but it's really uh, kind of a delightful thing as we're moving towards Christmas. We're going to have a white Christmas. Okay, we've got a great episode lined up today. Um, I'm really excited. I think, folks, that if you remember episode 52 with uh, Dr. Christopher Thompson, we talked about green Thomism. And if you like this that episode, I think you're going to like this one a lot because we're going to talk about just like uh, intentional living. I think we can apply this, this principle of integral ecology to the places in which we live. Really excited to welcome to the podcast uh, and radio show today, Chuck Marone. Chuck is the founder and president of Strong Towns. He's a professional engineer and a land use planner with decades of experience holds a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and a master of urban and regional planning, both from the University of Minnesota. He's the author of Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. We're going to talk a little bit about that book today. He hosts the Strong Towns podcast and is a primary writer for Strong Towns web content. He's presented Strong Towns concepts in hundreds of cities and towns across North America. Uh, Planetizen named him one of the 10 most influential urbanists of all time. I love the book. Chuck, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks for reading the book and thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a great, great read. Um, and I really encourage people to, um, to go pick it up. And you've got some other books if we want to talk about. Um, I know you've got one uh, out on transportation more recently that I actually, I asked my library to, to buy a copy. Haven't heard back from them yet, but if they don't, I'm definitely going to pick it up uh, elsewhere. <laughs> But let's just Great. start. Let's take it from the top. Like, what is what is Strong Towns? Can you give us a, a snapshot of some of the core principles that that motivates what Strong Towns is? Yeah, at Strong Towns, we 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 recognize that cities are not the lowest level of the government food chain. A city is our highest level of civic coordination. It's the way we work together in a place to build a community. And, and as such, you know, we need our cities to be strong. We need them to be adaptable. We need them to uh, be fiscally responsible. Uh, we need them to, uh, to reflect uh, the, the, the idea that we're not here for a, a week or a year or even a lifetime uh, undertaking building a community is a, is a multi-generational thing. Mm. Uh, we have to respect the people that came before us and, and the sacrifices they made. Uh, we have to uh, take care of things today and make sure that we're making a better place for everybody to live. And, and we also have to be cognizant of the future. And so a, a strong town and a strong town's approach leans into the kind of received wisdom of cities of the past to make sure that the way that we're building is 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 strong, resilient, and adaptable. So, and and if I understand it right, strong towns is not just like an organization. It's not just a a nonprofit that that promotes these ideas, but it, it's actually in a certain sense a movement. Is that yeah? Is that right? Yeah. That's very true. Uh, Strong Nuts started as a blog. It actually started as me writing uh, about why my city was going broke. 
Uh, I had worked for many years as a civil engineer, as a land use planner. And my city, despite all the stuff we had done to create jobs and growth and economic development, was struggling financially. And we were laying off firefighters. We were laying off police officers. We were closing library hours, not maintaining our parks. Why was this? And and I, I think there's a lot of explanations we give ourselves short term about budgets and what have you. But the reality is, is that the way we have built our city is created for us more long term expenses and liabilities than it's actually created in wealth and prosperity. And so I started to write about that. And that grew into this nonprofit organization, which itself has uh, spawned this. It's really, we focus on the US and Canada, but it's really become an international movement now. We have people who read our stuff all over the world and people who are trying to adopt a strong nouns approach on every continent. So let's turn to the book because the book, it's called Strong Towns, A Bottom Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Uh, if your local library doesn't have it, folks, ask them to buy it or get a copy yourself. Great book. But starting right at chapter one, I turned it open to chapter one and I saw the title, Human Habitat. And you, it's like you had me at hello, because there's <laughs> actually, that's a, that's a very loaded title. There's yeah. an implication that there is actually, it's possible to have a habitat, a place in which we live that is like ordered towards our prosperity, that it's a good for us in like the, the full philosophical sense of good. So can you t just tell us a little bit about that, that opening dynamite chapter about design that is just ordered towards, you know, human happiness? Yes. Yes. I, I, I think often we are very comfortable as humans looking at the ecology and the habitat of, of other species and recognizing that it serves them. We look at a beehive and we recognize that a beehive in a sense, co-evolved or exists in harmony with the bees. Uh, bees have a certain social structure to them. They have a certain way of living. And I think we recognize that if we went into a beehive and we said, you know, we could optimize bee production or we could optimize whatever variable by creating uh, hive cul-de-sacs and hive uh, superhighways. And, and, and we reconfigure this around a new set of ideas. I, I think we recognize that, you know, we would wind up with neurotic bees. We would wind up with bees that didn't fit with that habitat. I think a lot of times we look at humans as separate. We think of ourselves as, you know, different in almost a mechanistic way that if we can go in and just optimize our cities, our way of living, we can put in a cul-de-sac here and a highway over here and a furniture road over here that we can optimize for certain variables. And that's very true. We can do that. But what we give up is this harmony, this balancing of competing objectives that comes out of thousands and thousands of years of city building. You know, when, when you, I talk in the first chapter, even about simple things like the, the width of the street in relation to the building and the way that the, the houses open up onto the street and the social aspect of that space. You know, we have a population now today in, in North America that is uh, highly anxious, has high levels of anxiety, has high levels of depression, has reported high levels of loneliness. Yes. And we often try to treat these things, again, mechanistic as in drugs or some type of, you know, let's get you to the gym or what have you. But humans are, 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 have been wired this way for thousands of years and we found ways to deal with it. And a lot of those ways are reflected in the way we build our places.
You know, and I think that'll resonate with a lot of the Catholic listeners of this program because we think about a church, like actually the physical design and layout of the church matters. You know, right. like um, whether it's whether it's beauty, whether it's proportionality, whether it's, um, you know, just re- design the ratios that you talk about, the width of the street and so forth. Like we recognize that actually the physical structure and layout, if it's done well, it helps us worship well. And so in, in chapter one, what I took away was actually if we build and design well, it helps us live well. Yes. So. And I think if we look at like church design is a good, is a really good metaphor here because the church design is like the pinnacle of the, the, the knowledge, the wisdom, the, the, the practices that go into building a community. Uh, the church design represents, in a sense, the, uh, the, the, the perfected form of all those messy things that go on. Yes. I, I also think it's important for Catholics in particular. And I, I, we didn't start off this by saying that I'm a Catholic, but I am a Catholic and I, I respect, uh, you know, obviously the traditions of the Catholic church. I think one of the the things that we miss today is this idea of a parish, you know, a parish, the the word comes from a Greek word that means to dwell aside. Mm. And we think of a parish as this abstract thing, all the people who belong to the church and, you know, donate money and show up for mass and what have you, but a parish in its original sense were the people who lived in communion with each other next to and near the church, you know, within walking distance of the church. And that's a very physical thing. Uh, And there's a, there's a very physical relationship between where you abode, where your habitat is, where your place is and its relationship to the church and also to the broader community of, of Catholics that live, you know, next to you. You know, and I think we forget this, that um, I mean, cars have just sort of changed the way in which humans live, but at, at the heart of that is, Maybe we could just say that proximity matters yes. to a great degree. Yes. It's, it's, it's very interesting in a clinical way, and I think very tragic in the church way, when we look at you know, the effect of automobiles. Uh, automobiles are not bad. Uh, I think I own an automobile. I think it's great. It helps me get long distances in a fast period of time. But automobiles and the way we have, I think more importantly, built our cities around the automobiles have really changed the human habitat and made us, in a sense, wanderers in a new, a, a new biophysical land, yeah. one that is not only disconnected from each other and disconnected from our places, but disconnected from the church in fundamental ways. It, it, it takes effort. Think of it this way. Just... Sunday mass attendance. Yeah. If you live within six blocks of the church, which I'm fortunate enough to be able to do, my church is actually, I'm going to point right across the street. Like I can see it out my window right now where my office is. When I walk home, I walk right by the church and I go about six blocks. I live very close attending Sunday mass, regardless of the weather, regardless of any other circumstances, a very easy thing to do. It's a matter of getting up and walking out my door. When my wife and I lived 15 miles out of town, it was a 25 minute journey to get to church. And I'm not saying that, you know, (laughs) well, let me, let me say it very bluntly that did affect our church attendance. Because even if it just was weather or the kids were a little crabby or we were a little late getting up, uh, you know, it, it, it affected the amount of commitment you had to to attend 
mass. Now magnify that in all the other things that go on in parish life. And all of a sudden being a full participant in the church is something that takes a tremendous amount of effort. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I'm not suggesting that effort isn't worth it or people won't do it, but boy, we create a heavy burden for ourselves when we put that much burden between us and a full participation. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, I, um, before moving back to my home state of South Dakota for this, for the job I now have four years ago, we lived in rural Minnesota, similar situation outside of a smaller town. And I, okay, where, where did you live? I need to know that. I was in Isanti County. Um, so Cambridge was kind of our closest town. Sure. And, um, practiced law there in Isanti County and kind of served, I don't know, four or five, six counties, you know, between the twin cities and Duluth was sort of yeah, you know, I would a small town lawyer. It was it was great, but I one of the things that I really desired to do, um, just for my own like interior life, was I really wanted to just have a little time in the church, praying every day in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. But the distances just like it actually just was very difficult to do. And so when we moved here, we one of the things we wanted was we wanted to actually just have like the church as part of our everyday life. We bought a right. house literally a block away from the church and where I work now. And it, it actually, you know, there's a, there's a Catholic priest who's kind of like a, he's a blogger and a writer, Father Dwight Longnecker. And he, he it's, it's a made up Latin word, but he calls it uh, relocatio. You like mm-hmm. want to change your life, relocate and actually like put right. what's important to you in your life at the center of your life physically. So yeah, great, great principles. I, um, I want to get to some of the other things that you talk about in the book because they're, I mean, they're all just like really um, important and powerful. One of the things you talk about is a bottom-up driven growth rather than sort of a top-down imposition, which I think will resonate with some of our prairie pioneer spirit here of this bottom-up ethic. Can you say more about this principle and why it's important and healthy? Let's make it Catholic. While we're at it. Yeah. Because I, I, I do think, you know, it's, it's very interesting because I, I think that a lot of non-Catholics look at the Catholic Church and see a top-down hierarchy. Yes. They see a pope, they see cardinals, they see bishops, and they see a top-down hierarchy. But the reality is, is that the Catholic Church is ridiculously bottom-up. It's very, it's a very bottom-up, parish-driven kind of place. The Catholic Church practices something called subsidiarity. And subsidiarity, the, the, the base principle of it is that a decision should be made at the lowest level that it can competently be made. And so what this does is it, it does put certain uh, aspects of doctrine and faith in the hands of the Pope, but the Pope is not deciding who should get married and what, you know, what time the mass should be. And, you know, a, a whole bunch of things that can be handled best at a church level, at a block level. I, I, I think when we look at uh, this, this concept of a bottom up uh, approach, what we're really recognizing is that humans are messy, they're complex, they have different needs, uh, those needs change over time, and that we should empower them not only with the ability to do that, but also with, and I think Catholics will appreciate this, with the feedback from those actions, right? So if things don't work, you should experience that right away at the local level, as opposed to a decade or two or three later in some abstract and disconnected way. Yeah. One, one of the things we've done with our development pattern by making it very top down and very kind of over mechanized, over engineered is that problems will show up in one place 
and it's very hard to connect them to another place. So mm-hmm. we, we have an epidemic of obesity and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, why do we have this epidemic of obesity? And, and then I remember back to, you know, my great grandparents and, uh, and the person we bought our family farm from and the fact that the guy weighed like 120 pounds because he walked about six miles every day, just in the course of his, you know, daily getting around. Yeah. Um, we don't do that anymore. We drive everywhere and we have a much more sedentary life, but the disconnect between those is, you know, is, is that, that connection is rarely made. Yes. Yeah. I actually, so I, I had guard duty this weekend up in the twin cities. I'm in the C-130 unit up there. And I Which, a, you're, are you in the army <clears throat> guard or the air guard? The air guard. The air guard. Oh, I spent nine years in the army guard. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a lawyer. I'm a JAG in the air guard and nice. Um, Love, love serving, but caught a ride back home yesterday with somebody else coming to South Dakota. And so he's got, I got to visit with this uh, colleague of mine who is originally from Europe, from Kosovo, and is yeah. now in PA school. And this came up actually that, you know, people back home, back in, back in you know, Europe are, they, she's a medical professional, so they want to ask her questions. And they just don't have the same sorts of issues, obesity, no. uh, mm-hmm. diabetes, they, they don't come up and it's a diet thing, but it's also, I mean, she, she even made this connection. She's not a person that's read your book, but she made this connection of, of actually just like the physical layout of the places in which we live. Right. Yeah. So yeah. De- de- depression and loneliness. And I, I think those are two of the biggest ones hmm. because they just, uh, they rot your inner being, Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you wake up every day lonely and disconnected and without a, a purpose in life, um, it's very, very hard for you to to thrive as a human, yeah. uh, regardless of, of where you're at in your life cycle. And it, it, it you know, I, I think if we separate the theological from just the the day to day physical practice of being a Catholic or being, let's even make it a little bit more abstract, being part of a community, being part of a community creates, you know, (laughs) at the very least day-to-day practices that keep you connected to others and gives your life a a certain base level of meaning that you can, you know, thrive and build off of. Yeah. Okay. I want to, so you're an engineer, you're a city planner. Uh, We, we can maybe get into a little bit of some of the wonky stuff because there's this distinction that that is drawn in the book between systems. So like our city infrastructure systems, systems on the one hand that are complex versus systems that are complicated. Can you explain what that distinction means? Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a critical one. It, it is actually fairly easy to grasp uh, if we think of like natural ecosystems. So we, we all recognize that a rainforest is a complex system. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of different flora fauna. They all act independently of each other. They all respond to stress and opportunity within the environment. There's no coordinated plan. When we, when we look at a rainforest, it has a pattern to it, yeah. but that pattern is emergent. It emerges from all these complex interactions. Yeah. If we look at a cornfield, uh, a cornfield is a system that is not complex. It is merely complicated. It's one that is designed almost mechanistically to do one thing, yeah. which is to produce corn. Yeah. If we give a, a, a rainforest a lot of rain or a lot of sun, it doesn't fail. It, it will adapt and evolve and change and morph, but it doesn't fall apart. But if we give a rain, uh, 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 sorry, a cornfield, a lot of rain or a lot of sun in one cycle, yeah. It doesn't become soybeans. It doesn't become, you know, potatoes. It just fails as corn. 
Yeah. And so what you see in systems that are complicated is they lack this inner ability to adapt and change and evolve. They, they, they lack this ability to have different uh, properties emerge from those complex interactions. There are no complex interactions. It's, you know, a cornfield is you put in the seed, you add fertilizer, you add water, you add sun, you get corn. When we, when we look at cities, Cities historically have been complex, adapted places. They've been places that emerged from lots of individual actions, individual interactions, uh, individual decisions over time. But we have built cities today to be very mechanistic, to be very, to just be merely complicated, to lose that adaptability. And what that means, you know, from a practical standpoint, is that we can grow our economy very quickly. Yep. By building more houses, building more strip malls, building more frontage roads, building more interchanges, adding a new highway lane. We, we, we see, and you can hear federal politicians talk about this, you know, we're going to invest in infrastructure and then we get growth. We're going to invest in infrastructure and then we get jobs. And that relationship is very clear. It's very easy. But what we lose is, are, are those complex interactions, that feedback <clears throat> loop that is very local, very personal, very block level that tells us this is working or this is not working. So if I can, I'm gonna try and repeat this back to you to see if yeah, I understand please. it. So, on the, so we, maybe something complicated would be like out on, the, you know, out on the highway, we build a frontage road and we're gonna put in a, you know, a fleet farm or a Kmart or whatever. And 15 years go by and the business fails. And it's like, it's not really for anything else. You've got all this complicated, you know, you've got the pipes and the stuff that's like yeah. built and actually, when I lived in South Minneapolis going to law school, we had a Kmart down there that it failed. I and remember. It, just, it sat empty and it was right. actually blocking a major, you know, it was, but on the other hand, one of the things we're seeing in Sioux Falls now where I live is sort of mixed use uh, developments that are like, okay, apartments above and businesses below and the businesses are kind of built out in a multi-purpose way. So it's like, okay, a couple of years go by and like the cupcake shop goes under or whatever, but it's like, now that infrastructure is there and somebody else can come in right away and put in a barber or a law firm or yeah. whatever, like it's actually right. set up that way. Do, do I, do I understand the principle the way? Yeah. I think you understand the, the effect of complexity. Okay. Let, let me, let me give you another effect, an example of an effect. Um, we have a family who lives in a single family house and for some reason, uh, the, 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 the finances of that family changes. Yeah. They don't have the income they once have. Uh, they're having difficulty paying their mortgage. Uh, they're having hard times. In the American system today, what we say is you're going to either A, lose your house, uh, B, you're going to go pull the equity out of your house to make your payments. So you're going to go yeah. further into debt. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and those are really your two options okay. uh, or, or, or you're going to hope that your financial situation changes quickly. If we go back into the past and we look at what, you know, cities of the past or communities of the past would have had the flexibility to do, uh, that family with the four bedroom house could have taken one of those bedrooms, um, put an exterior door on it, maybe uh, put a kitchenette in there and rented it out as an efficiency apartment. Yeah. and use that revenue from that little bit of sacrifice of space to pay their mortgage. Yeah. And so now you would have had a living unit for someone at a very low end cost, and you would have had a family that could stay in their house and, and actually build some of their own wealth and capacity there. We've taken that off the table. We've said, you know, because of the way we finance homes, because of the way that we build homes, because of our zoning, yeah. all these things, we, we say, you can't do that. And 
So we created this, you know, mechanical thing, this, this very complicated system that we provide the pipes and and the drainage and the foundation and the house and the financing and the insurance. And now you can have a single family home, but when a family varies from what that kind of idealistic, you know, two and 0.5 kids and a dog and and two cars in the suburb kind of thing, we don't have the flexibility to adapt in any way. And that, that makes our families really, really fragile. We've got about three minutes left, Chuck. And I want to, so kind of bringing us to the end of the book, the, the chapter is titled An Intentional Life. In our, in our last couple of minutes here, can you tell us what's at the heart of this chapter that ends the book? Yeah, a lot of people told me I should have written this chapter first, and I, I don't think I could have. I, I think you have to explore through the book to get to this. Um, but it, it really does get to this idea of a life of meaning. What, what does it mean to live a life that, that has meaning? And how can you choose that within the framework that we have. Right now, today, the one thing that we all have in common as Americans is that we are nudged to be consumers. In every aspect of our life, we are you know, bombarded with um, advertising and uh, opportunities to purchase things and opportunities to buy things. And kind of the, 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 the glue that holds us together is that we all buy stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think if you wanna live a life that is different than that, you have to be very, um, you have to really push back on it day to day. You have to fight against it. Yeah. I think cities of the past and, and a city of, of the future that I would like to live in is one that allows you to live a life that is intentionally aligned with your own values and your own systems. And the nudges that you have, the, the kind of yoke that you take on would be one that would reinforce the kind of person that you would want to be as opposed to the person that, uh, you know, corporations want you to be, or the state wants you to be, or what have you. Uh, I would love to see us all be able to live lives with the intentions that we have to them as easily as possible. So, so if people are intrigued by all this, what is like one next step that you might encourage listeners to take? Oh, wow. That, that's a, that's a really good question to me. I always tell people to go take a walk. Um, and if you, you know, if, if this is a Catholic podcast, so I think I can say this, start at your church yeah. and just walk a, a mile around the church yep. and experience what that is like. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and imagine what it could be like if it were just a little bit better. And I think if, if we can think in, in those terms, not a broad sweeping change, but in really starting where the apostle Paul started uh, and saying, how do we build this church out of nothing, out of this, you know, flawed landscape that we have and messy people, how do we start building something? Uh, I think if we just have that mindset, how do we take what we have now and start trying to make it a little bit better? Uh, we'll be amazed at what would happen generations from now. Beautiful. Okay, so if people want to kind of plug in, what's the website? Where's your Twitter? How can they plug into what Strong Towns is doing? Well, strongtowns.org is the website. Strong Towns is the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're, we, we, we're, we're working very, very hard to get this message out to as many people as we can. And so, yeah, come there, plug in. We've got all kinds of ways for people to get up to speed uh, that don't involve reading the book. But if you want to read the book, uh, that's a good place to start too. Awesome. Chuck Marone, thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you, Chris. It's delightful to be here. Well, and thank you as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. I hope you kind of saw how this conversation maybe plugs in a little bit with uh, Dr. Christopher Thompson, green Thomism, and some of the themes that actually, I mean, we closed it out with that consumerism a little bit. 
and, and very much a Laudato Si' um, kind of ethic that I hope we can explore a little more in the future on, on this program. As always, love feedback. Love to hear from you. You can go to sdcatholicconference.org, click contact us, let us know what you like, didn't like, or any other feedback you have. Until next time, live well. Live well.